session with Dr. Farid Kolaku. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books from the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. I wasn't here last week, so I uh, have some catching up to do as far as the books go. So I'm going to start off today with two book reviews um, and then uh, get into some calls. Uh, but before I do that, I also want to announce the book for this week that I'll talk about on next week next week's show on Monday. It's Letter to the Father by Franz Kafka. And um, this is a letter that uh, Kafka wrote to his father, who he had a tumultuous relationship with. Um, And uh, it's supposed to be very interesting to read this letter that he wrote to his father. And actually, this was recommended and gifted to me, this book. So thank you, Danka, to uh, whoever uh, person was able to give this to me. I'm very happy to read it and share it with you next week. That's Letter to the Father by Franz Kafka. Okay, so for the first book, which was from two weeks ago, is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. Uh, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. Uh, This was quite an interesting book, and as the subtitle suggests, uh, Lori Gottlieb talks about... um, a lot of her own clients, which is interesting, and I'll talk a bit about that, but she also talks about her own therapy and uh, finding a therapist and then going to therapy and shares a lot about her own sessions and the work she did, which I thought was quite interesting. And throughout the book, she does show a lot of vulnerability by opening up about herself and her own life, which I actually liked because I think uh, a lot of times in books that are self-help-related the author tries to come off as, in a way, all-knowing or that they don't have their own problems or that they did have problems, but they figured it out. And in this book, I felt that she was much more vulnerable in showing that uh, even though she's a therapist and at times she's the person that's helping people, um, she herself also needs help in that same way. And also by sharing intimate moments of therapy throughout the book, whether it's her being the therapist or her own therapy, I thought that was also good in some ways to demystify therapy because I think a lot of times people who have never gone to therapy don't know what to expect or um, they think it's something really strange or weird or different or something that they should be nervous about. And I always think it's nice to have people share glimpses of what the actual experience is like to hopefully uh, reduce some of that anxiety that might make it harder for people to go in. Um, but as I mentioned, she shares about her own life and early in the book, she talks about a breakup she had where she felt completely blindsided. Uh, and she refers to that person as boyfriend. They, they never have a name. Um, also as is usually the case, um, although she discusses clients of her own, uh, she disguises their names and their stories so that they would not be able to identify themselves. And even her own therapist, 
she discusses in the book, she calls him Wendell. Uh, and near the end of the book, she explains that she calls him Wendell because she would see him on Wednesdays. So it's kind of like Wednesdays with Wendell. She even jokes like that kind of a title. Um, so the names are disguised. Uh, but she talks about how boyfriend, uh, for her, it seems like out of nowhere, breaks up with her saying that she he can't live with her child or doesn't like the idea of li- living with a kid for the next 10 years. Her son was about eight at the time. And so she feels blindsided and uh, she's crying and falling apart, but she still goes and sees clients. And I thought that was interesting too, to get some behind the scenes, so to speak, look at what a therapist goes through and that although the therapist is going to be there for his or her clients, they have their own things that they go through as well. And so here we see her going through a whole lot and um, she tries to keep it together. And of course, it's important for a therapist, just like any professional, to make sure they are okay to do the work they have to do. If you're going through too much, you might have to take time off, take a vacation, take a break. And especially as a therapist, we have to be ready to be there emotionally and handle the emotions of our clients. And so if we're going through too much emotionally, we might not be fit for the job at that time. It might need to take some time off. But anyway, it's this breakup that she goes through that uh, serves as the impetus for her to go into therapy herself. And she asks a few colleagues and friends that are also therapists. And it was interesting that even she as a therapist was embarrassed to say that it was for her or when she asked, she said it was for a friend uh, when she asked her own friend who was a therapist, um, which is interesting. And throughout the book, she talks about different aspects of therapy and uh, the stigma that we have. And of course, unfortunately, it's still very alive and well. Um, But even it was interesting to me that she herself in that moment had a hard time saying that this is for me. I remember when I was looking for a therapist, I asked a few of my um, classmates or people I went to graduate school with for some recommendations. And um, one of them was able to give me a good recommendation or gave me a few. And I ended up choosing one of them. But I felt okay saying it was for me. But, you know, different circumstances can lead to uh, different ways of how we want to act in that moment. But anyway, um, but it was interesting seeing her own process of finding a therapist. And there are some therapists that see therapy therapists themselves more than um, others might but anyway she finds Wendell and she's very happy with him and it's interesting to see her own process and I think it's very useful for anyone to go to therapy but especially as a therapist sitting on the other side of the couch so to speak being the client could be very uh, eye-opening to realize and remember what it's like to be the one that has to share and be vulnerable and open up and the feelings that can come up in that whole process. And even in graduate school, it's almost always a requirement, whether it's master's level or doctorate level, that you do your own therapy before you can either graduate or become licensed. And I think that should always be a requirement because it's so important to have that experience uh, from the other side, to, to be the client. And so she shares her own, even sometimes awkward moments in therapy, the feelings she has, um, the the challenges she faces, realizing that maybe she is a challenging client to her therapist or she might be stuck in the same space and over and over again talking about the same things or even trying to convince her therapist of something, to convince her therapist that my boyfriend was a jerk or a psychopath or whatever else. And, and she realizes that she's trying to convince him more than actually see 
the reality and even starts to see with the help of the therapist that as much as she felt blindsided that how could my boyfriend out of it felt like out of nowhere tell her these things about uh, not being okay living with a, a son or living with a kid in the home for the next 10 years she realized that she was avoiding the conversations herself where she was avoiding seeing some of the signs and as much as she blamed him for being an avoider she realized she herself was also avoiding and that's what's so fascinating to me about therapy is that uh, a lot of times people think you go into therapy and they're going to just tell you everything or give you advice and she talks about that in the book or tell you do this or do that or break up with this person or take that job but that's really not what therapy is about it's more about holding up a mirror and sometimes we don't want to see what's in that mirror or we won't want, don't want to see it clearly. And she faces that herself where she starts to realize there was many things that were going on that maybe she do, did not want to see. But gently, Wendell, her therapist, is able to get her to become more aware of what was going on and that oftentimes what brings us to therapy, what we can call the presenting problem, and what we think is the only reason we're there might not be the most important thing and actually there might be some bigger underlying issues that we are not facing or that are actually even more significant than the thing that brings us in and that was also the case for Lori as she goes through her own therapy she also talks about her own experience of um, being first in Hollywood and doing different jobs wanting to be um, a doctor first actually then working in Hollywood in different ways and then going into therapy so we also see a bit of her journey in that way as well which I thought was interesting but also the cases that she shares throughout the book and that's kind of what kept the book interesting was there's all these different storylines going at the same time her own experience through the breakup and her therapy with Wendell but then several of her clients that throughout the book we get to know more about which I found interesting as well and seeing these uh, these you know as the the title says, Our Lives Revealed. Seeing these lives revealed was very uh, intense at times. There's one woman, uh, Julie, I think was the name of the client or the name she gave for this newlywed who then develops cancer. And um, throughout the book, we see her going through this journey and eventually dying from cancer. And there's a lot of pain there and a lot of intense things and facing death and realizing herself, Lori, that she maybe was afraid to face death or really to go into that void of what that means. Um, but we see that experience, and it's very sad. And by the end of the book, all of these different stories coming together, uh, it was quite emotional. I felt myself tearing up reading about these various conclusions. One was with Julie uh, dying. Also, um, this other client, John, who was this quintessential arrogant guy who all he keeps saying is that everyone is an idiot. Everyone in the world is an idiot in different ways. This person was an idiot because they did this, and everyone's just not good enough. And it's interesting because you can even feel from Lori, and I think she talks about it, that it makes him hard to like in a way at the beginning initially, and sometimes you can feel that about someone. But you realize that underneath all this um, arrogance and putting everyone else down and trying to be perfect himself or presenting himself as perfect, we see that there's a lot of pain underneath. And this man, John, he had lost his mother when he was young and then tragically he lost his son in a car accident where he himself was driving um, when the son was I forgot how old maybe six or something and so we see that there's so much pain underneath 
that arrogance or that harshness, which almost always is the case. And so I also enjoyed that part of the book where you see some people on the surface at first, but as you go deeper, as she goes deeper with them in therapy, um, you see that there's always some explanation or understanding that we can get of the individual that could very much shift our perspective on how we see them, that actually they're not just a jerk, that there is much more to them, and almost always there is some pain. And a reminder that even though we're walking around and we see all these people around us and everyone seems to maybe have it together, we never know the stories and the pain that each individual is carrying, that we all go through so much and have had so many experiences that maybe people might not realize, but hopefully that will allow us to keep that in mind and have more compassion for people that we meet and interact with, knowing that everyone has a story that contains a lot of pain in it. Um, what I also thought was interesting was seeing her own therapy uh, develop. And then also uh, she says bye to her therapist at the end. Of course, therapy, like lots of relationships um, in a parental type of sense, we love in a way that we want the person to be strong enough to not need us anymore. And the same is true in therapy, that there comes a time when it is appropriate to end, and she feels like she gets to that point. And she does acknowledge that it doesn't mean she would never come back to Wendell or go back to therapy, but that for this time, she feels ready to say goodbye, or at least take a break, or even she doesn't say, say goodbye, but she calls it a pause in the conversation. And that was another point where I found myself feeling uh, emotional. The tears in my eyes again were welling up as I heard her saying goodbye in that session with her therapist. And that's actually something that's very often recommended. I think it is always a good idea that even if you're going to stop therapy, you do what we call one or two termination sessions, meaning that you process the goodbye. Because one important aspect of therapy, uh, a lot of times we think it's the special techniques that the therapist is going to use, or they're going to use certain types of almost like tricks to make us okay. But a big part of what heals us in therapy is having that relationship with the therapist. And in research, even they find that more important than the type of therapy or even the experience of the therapist, the thing that seems to heal the most or seems to be most helpful in therapy is the relationship that is formed between the client and therapist. So what hopefully the therapist can do is to model a healthy, loving relationship with the client. And healthy relationships include lots of things like being consistent, being real, being authentic. And that was something else I enjoyed throughout the book was her being very authentic both with her clients and also her own therapist being very authentic with her, being very much himself, being very real with her. Um, and what that means is when we're real, we at times have to face discomforts, have uncomfortable conversations. She talks a lot of times throughout the book about having silences with her clients and how we tend to get uncomfortable with these silences, but uh, silence doesn't mean something is bad or missing. And of course, there's various types of silences, but being able to just be quiet and silent with someone doesn't mean that nothing is happening. You can be definitely sharing a moment with them, and she shares them with her clients and also with Wendell, her own therapist. Um, but that goodbye was very sad for me. I felt myself feeling that, the tearing up, and she was talking about how near the end of that session, that last session with him, um, she said, let's consider this a pause in the conversation, like every week but longer. And um, he says that, you know, maybe we won't even meet again, and that's okay. 
And so that goodbye for me was very powerful. And remembering that we have people in our lives, we don't know how long we're going to have them. Sometimes it makes sense for us to no longer be in someone's life for various reasons, but it doesn't mean that they go away. We can always carry them with us in different ways. Uh, so this book was very interesting. She's also very funny at times, makes you laugh at the way she talks about different things and shares different experiences, both from being a therapist and just being a human being that I thought was interesting, uh, especially some of the behind the scenes aspects of being a therapist that maybe people are not as aware of as what, what a therapist goes through. So I found that part interesting as well. Um, but I uh, highly would recommend this book to anyone who just wants to enjoy a book about learning about ourselves. But also, if you are curious about therapy, I think this is a good book, in a way, an introduction to see what therapy can be like or what to expect or not to expect when it comes to going to therapy. So that was Lori Gottlieb. Maybe you should talk to someone a therapist, her therapist, and our lives revealed. And in the next segment, I'll be talking about The War for Kindness by Jamil Zaki. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. We'll be right back. back okay the next book that i'll be talking about today is the war for kindness building empathy in a fractured world by jamil zaki the war for kindness and um i think intentionally the title is a little bit almost ironic when you say the war for kindness um, but it does make sense when you read the book realizing how important it is for us to think about things like kindness and empathy always, but in today's world where we're becoming, as the title suggests, fractured and more separate from each other, and how this is not just something nice or feels good, but that if we are not aware of how the lack of empathy or lack of kindness can affect us, it could literally end to the demise of the world, whether it's through war or neglect of the environment and climate change. So it's not just something nice and sweet, as the word kindness might suggest, but something very important. So I think to me, that's part of why the title is also very appropriate, is that there really should be a thought in our mind of almost like a war, that we have to take this very seriously, that we have to fight for kindness in a way, and that there is um, this challenge that is in front of us of trying to be more empathic ourselves and also create a more empathic and kind world. And the book talks about both of those things. Now, the word empathy itself um, can be defined in a lot of different ways. Also, there's different types of empathy, and he talks about that throughout the book. And also at the end, there was a very helpful appendix called uh, What is Empathy? And he talks about different types and uh, splitting empathy up into three different types. And so one type is the sharing type of empathy. And so that's where we can talk about experience sharing or um, emotional empathy or personal distress, meaning that I literally will feel your pain. So if you see someone crying, it'll make you sad and maybe you even cry too, to the point where it actually does upset you or hurt you. And then there's also thinking about type of empathy, and that's sometimes called mentalizing or cognitive empathy or theory of mind. And that means that I think about why you're feeling this way, trying to understand it. And so that's a little bit of a deeper aspect also has more of a cognitive aspect, not just an emotional one, um, but that involves more thinking about the, the why. So someone is sad and you try to understand, oh, they're sad because 
Um, they just lost their job and that must be very painful and you can try to understand it. And then there's also the caring about type of empathy. So that's also called empathic concern, um, yeah, motivational empathy or compassion. And so that's when we see someone who's suffering and if we care about them, as the, the term implies, we want to do something to help make their situation better. And so like a lot of uh, terms, we can dice it up into these different ways, but they're also very much related because often if you're feeling something for someone, you're going to want to do something for them. So you're going to care. And if you're thinking about it also, you might want to care for them. So they're all related to one another. Um, but so the book looks at empathy and starts off with this important concept of not just what is empathy, if we try to understand what it is, but is it something that can be changed in an individual? And this is really an important point, because if we think of something as a fixed trait, like let's say my height now as an adult, there's nothing I can do to change it. So of course, I'm not going to make efforts to try to change my height because I don't think there's any point. It doesn't make any difference. But for example, um, my physic physique, I know that I can change that. I know that there's a growth mindset there or it's mobile. It can change. So I might put time and energy into that. And so when we look at empathy, unfortunately, a lot of people and throughout history, the assumption has been, as he shares in the book, that empathy or the way we care for people is just something we are born with and something we can't change. Some people are just more caring than other people. Some people are more empathic than others. And that can't change very much within an individual throughout their life, no matter what they do or they don't do, it's going to stay fixed. But he shares research that shows that this is not the case, that actually as much as we might think of it as a fixed thing, and because we've heard this for generations even more, that it's fixed, it is not so. You actually can make big changes in how empathic you are, how much you care for others, even that word other, who you consider us versus them, can change based on what you do and how you think about things. And so it's very important for us to be aware that empathy is not a trait, something that we're just born with and can't change, but in a way it's more like a skill, something that you can work on. And the term emotional intelligence is kind of a broad one, um, but what we have seen or what a lot of people will talk about related to emotional intelligence is that it is something that we can work on and change. Our IQ can change very little, actually. It can change a bit, and he talks about that in the book, but not so much. But things like our EQ, our emotional intelligence, seem to be much more malleable than things like IQ or something else like height, as I was saying, which really doesn't change at all. Um, we can make big improvements in these types of skills, including empathy. And what's interesting, and he talks about um, Carol Dweck's mindset concept, which is that some people look at things as fixed and other things uh, as growth. So things like being smart or being successful in school. A lot of times we tell kids, you're smart and that's why you got an A. But we know that this is actually going to hurt them much more than if we tell them you got an A because you worked hard, because you put effort in. It's not a fixed thing, being successful in school or doing well academically. It's actually about growth. It's about how much work you put into it. And what we see is that when people think of something as fixed, they also don't try as hard to change it. But if we are able to show people that actually something like empathy and kindness is not just something you're born with and can't change at all, but it's actually a skill you can develop, 
what we find is that people then actually do try to grow in this area of their life. So it's quite interesting that what we believe can significantly affect how we, what we do, how we try to either improve or we don't try to improve in some area in our life. And I think that's why this book and these concepts are so important um, because when we think of kindness and sometimes we can think, oh, that's just a soft topic. And even for the soft sciences of psychology, for example, we might think it's too soft, but it definitely is not to me. It's something very important that we should take very seriously. And it's important to spread this um, message that it is something we can improve on in ourselves, that we might think we're either born kind or not, or whatever we're at is where we're at, but that's definitely not the case. And so that's why I think a book like this is so important that people become aware of this, that we can become more kind as people, as individuals, and as systems. And he talks about that as well. Um, and so throughout the book, he shares different aspects of caring and how we do care or won't care or things that can affect this. And one big part is contact. Um, I think the con it's called hatred versus contact is one of the chapters. And so one of the most clear findings is that something that can make us care more for others is being in contact with them. And now all contact is not created equally, but if we're interacting with people, um, we tend to care about those people, whatever that is a group, uh, whether that's ethnicity, sexuality, religious group, whatever it might be, we tend to care for them more. And this makes sense because when we don't care for others, when we look at them as a them, very often what we also do is we dehumanize them. We see them somehow as less than human. They're animals or they are um, evil people or they are whatever the term might be, but somehow we see them as less than human. But if we interact with an individual, we see their humanity. We see that like us, they hurt and they get happy and they probably care about the same types of things we care about. And it's very hard to continue to dehumanize them. So what we often see is that when we interact with people from some different group, whatever that difference is to us, uh, we tend to see them as more human and it's easier for us to care about them and to be kind to them. And that can sometimes take effort on our part or if you're a parent on your part as uh, raising your children, making sure they are interacting with people or seeing different people or having different experiences that get them to see that this us and them is not so clear. And even what's interesting is us and them can be defined in so many ways and can change moment to moment. He talks about himself uh, being at Stanford, and there's a rivalry between Stanford and UC Berkeley. Here, when I went to UCLA, I remember there's a huge rivalry between UCLA and USC, and so we're supposed to not like each other. But if you were in Italy and you ran into someone who was wearing a USC sweater, you'd be like, oh, we're both from LA. Or even if they're from another state, we're both from America. So what is considered us and them we know is malleable also. It could seem like it's very fixed, but we realize in different contexts that can change as well. So this is where, again, our own efforts can make a difference. When we start to see less of a us and them, if we start to think about people as less different from us by considering they're more human than we might realize if we just try to see them as different, we actually can see them as part of our group. So we can actually see, as cliche as it might sound, one human family rather than so many differences. And so I thought... Um, that was an important chapter that uh, 
talks about this very clear evidence that when we are in contact with others, it's harder to keep disliking them or not caring about them. Now, on the other extreme, there's also caring too much. And so he talks about going into this uh, intensive care unit for prenatal or children who are born, born prematurely, and that's a very heavy chapter, talking to the nurses and doctors who work there and he himself being there. And you see uh, the story of this boy, Francisco, who unfortunately doesn't make it, who was born very premature and just cannot make it. And the way that these doctors and nurses with so much respect and reverence deal with this painful situation, both with the baby and with um, the baby's parents, was very touching but very heavy. And so he follows them and sees how they're able to handle this. And this is why he talks about caring too much, because a lot of times in caring professions, um, doctors, nurses, even therapists, they can go through what we call burnout, that they're just, because they're caring too much uh, or and carrying too much, it becomes too much of a burden, they're no longer able to continue. And this is where we're trying to find that balance of, I want to care, but not care so much that it actually makes us that I can't help anymore. And we often find ourselves in these situations, not just if we're uh, you know, a doctor or a nurse in a very stressful environment, but with loved ones. If your family member is depressed and you want to be there for them, but if it starts to take a toll on you, it's finding that balance of how can I make sure I'm showing my care and, and trying to take care of them, but taking care of myself enough where it doesn't overwhelm me. And he makes the distinction that we talk, I talked a bit about before, but looking at either empathic distress versus empathic concern. And so when we have empathic distress, that means that when someone is sad or going through something around us, we take it on. So it actually causes distress for us. And this is not going to be good in the long term. This is going to make it much more likely that we burn out and we even just stop helping that individual. But if we have empathic concern, that means that we feel for someone and we want to improve their well-being. We don't actually feel their feelings, but we can try to understand it better. We care and we want to help. And it might seem like these are almost the same thing, but it makes a big difference. And this is even why when you see a child, let's say a baby falls and cries, if the mom or dad is so overwhelmed and they themselves start crying, they can't really be there for the child. So they won't be able to let the child come to them for support. And also they're going to get too affected over time to actually take care of their own baby. So finding this balance is a very critical issue. Um, and of course, caring too much is is a big problem. I think in general, our bigger issue is people not caring enough, which he touches on in this book. But also, it is very important for us to realize that just thinking that if we bleed for everyone and we're feeling so much pain for everyone else's pain, as much as this might make us feel very noble and like a saint and a martyr, we're actually probably not helping as much if we do that. And so trying to find that balance where we actually um, care, but care in a way where we can still actually take care of them and take care of us can sometimes be a very fine line, but a very important one to figure out. So hearing these stories and the ways that these doctors and nurses cope with what they are dealing with, to me, was very interesting. Um, he also talks about the importance of stories and how even things like doing theater, which we might think of, okay, just some kind of art, but actually can help people become more empathic because when you are acting, you're supposed to really get into the mindset and the feeling of whoever you're acting as or whoever you're portraying. And this can actually help people become 
more empathic or become better at understanding feelings. It, sometimes not as um, intensely, but similarly, if we read novels, uh, that can be helpful as well. And actually, that's something even in the books I share, I've thought about adding more novels into the books I read for the books of the week. Um, and sometimes I'm reminded of how people will talk about novels uh, as somehow less important than books that are quote-unquote information because they think those are giving them something, they're teaching us something. Um, but as the, the research he shares and the, the concepts he shares in that chapter, uh, we get a lot from reading novels and reading literature. It's not just stories, it's about people and human life and situations and we can get motivated and inspired by what we read. We can learn about ourselves, learn about others, learn about relationships, and that can be very important. Um, and even he shares about a, a new, uh, not new, but this, um, I don't know if you want to call it a project where people who are criminals who have been in jail, they read uh, in, and they can actually join a book club that might that could actually reduce their sentence, and they're finding that it helps people to not recommit crimes when they're then released from jail. So we see that it's not just something nice to read stories, uh, but actually something that can really help us grow as individuals. And so um, that's something, as I mentioned, I want to add to the books I read here also because I get to read those books, and I, I want to have that experience. But just another reminder that sometimes we think of stories as not important, as just fun, but Throughout history, human history, stories have always been a very important part of um, our culture, of all cultures, and there's reason for that. And so we don't want to undermine that aspect um, and realizing how it actually is a big part of what helps us understand ourselves and understand one another. Um, you know, there's so much in this book that I can talk about, and I'll just leave with a few more um, thoughts. He talks about some interesting new work using something like Google Glasses, if you remember that from a few years ago, um, but helping individuals with autism even become more aware of understanding feelings. And that was quite interesting to me because uh, sometimes, again, thinking of that fixed mindset, we thought people with autism just can never understand other people's feelings. And sure, they might be starting at a lower set point than most individuals, but it doesn't seem to be the case that they can't do it at all or that they can't improve. And I thought that was interesting. And so things with virtual reality and augmented reality are going to be very interesting and helping in these types of ways and different types of treatment, which he shares about. Um, but the book I thought was very interesting in understanding how we ourselves can look at improving our own ability to be kind. And things like meditation even can help. For example, meta or loving kindness meditation can help us start to have this feeling of uh, empathic concern for all people. And you can start with yourself, your family, friends, and then eventually try to extend that to all people and really just the whole world. And there is evidence showing that this does actually work. And I thought that message to me was so important for us to keep in mind as individuals that we can improve in our ability to be kind and empathic. And I think we should all take that very seriously. And then if you're a parent, think about how you're instilling that into your children. Don't just think, well, I have a caring child or I might, this child is not so caring, but how you can cultivate that skill in them and really think of it as a skill, not something that's just set, but also as a society, how we can be aware that we can create more uh, 
kind systems when it comes to education, how important that can be when we discipline kids? Is our focus just to punish them or is it actually to help them understand what happened and have an experience? And even as a society, are we just trying to punish individuals? Um, and he did share a bit about, which I thought was interesting and very uh, close to my heart, about people who are homeless and how we can tend to dehumanize them and not want to see their pain or not think they actually feel pain the way that we do or think of them somehow as less than or deserving of what they're going through when we know really that's not the case. And I, I'm glad he mentioned that in the book in several different parts. And so to me, this was a very important book because we can think of something like kindness, as I mentioned, as just this nice thing or something that sounds pleasant, but really kindness and empathy are so important for what's happening in the world today and what will determine what happens in the future. And even as he touches on uh, future generations, how we take care of the planet and what we decide to do here. So I really enjoyed this book, The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World by Jamil Zaki. All right, we're going into our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the previous segment, I was talking about Jamil Zaki's book, although I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right, so I apologize. Uh, the War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. And I mentioned this in the previous segment, and I wanted to continue part of that discussion about raising your kids to be more kind or empathic. And a lot of times parents think their their roles, or I think they might have some of the ideas of what they're supposed to do a little bit mixed up. To begin with, parents generally think that their job is to make their kids happy. And just by happy, they mean feeling good all the time, which I definitely disagree with. Of course, we want to take care of them and, and give them what they need. But happiness, I don't think, should be the goal. Um, and even more than that, what I see as a problem is when parents think their job is to make sure their kids are star students or are getting good grades, and they think their job is to almost be like a homework and school manager. And to me, that is definitely not the role the parent is supposed to play. Of course, definitely one part of it is being aware of their education and how things are going, but not to make that the priority. And unfortunately, what I see happening is that we make that the priority over everything else over how they're doing emotionally, over how they're even acting emotionally or how they interact with others. And so when we make that the most important thing, we lose sight of what I think actually are much more important things. And one thing to me that is very important is to focus on your child's overall emotional well-being, emotional intelligence, emotional development, and also how empathic they are, kindness. And I actually think rather than just rewarding A's and good grades, we should reward our kids for being kind. And so if your child gets a good grade or gets um, some kind of a, an award academically, of course it's good to celebrate that. And so you might say you'll take them out to get ice cream or a favorite toy or whatever it might be. But I would hope that parents also do that same thing if they find out that their child was nice to a new student who came to school. And so if the teacher tells you that there was a new student and your child actually went up to that new student to make sure he or she was okay and talked to them and took care of them. I would hope that that would make you want to reward them as much or if not even more than when they get a good grade. And so we have to be aware that when we think of what are things we can do to make our kids be anything, very often we think of just specific techniques and moments, but really it's about how we approach them in general. So for example, if you make 
feelings important to begin with, that has a big impact. So that's something that is very important to me is that parents talk to their kids about feelings. How do you feel? And even when they're babies, actually, I was um, at a friend's birthday the other day and there was two babies there and I was happy. I was talking with one of my friends about how they talk to their baby about feelings, even though their son can't communicate so clearly, but now he is about his emotions. But if he's crying, they might let him know, oh, it seems like you're sad. Or if they're upset, you say, oh, it seems like you're angry. Whatever their feelings are, it's very important to verbalize them, give them the words, because they won't understand that yet. But we know that when we have words for our feelings, that helps in understanding ourselves and understanding others when it comes to the emotional word world. So we want to use those words with them from before they understand them. We verbalize it. We try to help them understand it. And then they start to actually say it back to you. Uh, even my friend was saying, even though his son wasn't even two, that now he'll say happy or he'll say something about how he's feeling because they understand now that this is the happy feeling. So we show them that feelings matter. Um, but as they get older, we want to also start to teach them to think about their feelings and also other people's feelings. So if they get in a fight with a kid, even on the playground or when they're very little, of course, first you want to make sure they're okay emotionally. They feel like you're being empathic with them, um, which is also a big part of teaching them empathy as yourself showing it. But then also once they seem okay, you might want to help them with some perspective taking. So what do you think he or she felt? What do you think they were thinking? And try to understand, not that you're trying to judge who was right or wrong or good or bad, but it's about understanding. And so showing that, that we want to understand other people's perspective, other people's pain. And so we don't want to just say we're right and we're the one who was the good one in whatever the interaction was, but teach them that it's important to try to understand everyone in the interaction, understand each other. And so taking a step back, what's going to be so important is how you actually model this with them. When you have conversations with them, do you hear them out and make sure their feelings are important and their perspective is important? Do you share your perspective in a kind way, but making sure they understand you as well? Do you include other people if they are in the interaction and try to understand their sides? So as always, when we try to teach our children something, it's not more about instruction, about telling them this is good, this is the right thing to do, but it's more important what we do, the modeling that we're doing every moment, every day. If we're showing empathy and kindness, your child is more likely to be empathic and kind. If you're rude and mean to people around you, if you don't show concern for people in the world and the people around you in general, well, of course, your child is going to get that message as well. So as always, we can't really fake these things or just say, I want my child to be a certain way, so I'm going to tell them to be that way. We really have to try to be that way ourselves, genuinely. Show genuine care and concern for other people, and they will see that as well. And have conversations with them as they get older about different issues. If you see a homeless person, of course, very often our reaction is try to ignore it or to try to minimize the situation or somehow avoid it however we can, but I would recommend not doing that. Talk to your child about what's going on. And I hope you don't take the approach that many people do, which is to blame the victim or blame the person who's homeless. Well, you know, son or daughter, they they don't they didn't try hard or they are on drugs. And so that's why they're living on the street. And we often do this because we like to feel like we live in a just world that if someone is suffering, they must have done something to suffer. 
because it doesn't just happen to anyone. So if it's a bad thing that happened to someone, they must be a bad person or they deserved it somehow, which especially when you look at homelessness in the United States, is definitely not the case. Um, many people are very close to homelessness just because of the wages that people have and the prices for rent and things of that sort in healthcare. So it's not something that we can just blame anyone who's homeless that somehow it's just their fault. It's unfortunately something that people do, but we do that because it's easier to believe that than to really believe, you know what, there's a huge injustice happening all around us, that something very unfair is happening. So it's a lot easier for me to think, well, somehow they deserved it, or what we also do is we dehumanize them. They're crazy. They're drug addicts. They're this, they're that. Somehow to make it seem like they're not real people or they're somehow less than people. But none of those is really the case. These are human beings who are suffering and we let it happen. And we shouldn't accept it, but we do. And so I would hope that with your children, when you see people who are hurt in different ways, rather than just trying to shield them from everything, again, going back to the mindset that my job as a parent is to make sure my kid is happy and smiling all the time, we actually allow for them in age-appropriate ways to become aware of the realities of the world, of things going on around them and in the world around them, and how people are suffering and people do go through things and it's not fair. And can you imagine what it's like to be them or what they go through? And those things will also help them be more empathic and more caring, more aware of the fact that people go through things and they're just like you and me. And related to that, something I also see is that parents sometimes think, well, we want to make our child feel special. And every child deserves that feeling that when their parents see them, they feel so special to them that your eyes light up, that you get excited, that you're happy about them. That's really what every child wants to feel from really almost everyone, but especially from their parents. So we want to give them that feeling. But at the same time, I think it's so important for parents to not think that when you do that, that means that you have to teach your child that they're somehow better than other people. And I see a lot of people do this in all cultures, but I also see it a lot in uh, Iranian families where they think that they have to tell their kid that they are better than other kids. And almost we give them the message that even if you're mean to other people or bad to other people, it doesn't matter because you're you. And we think, see how much I'm making my child feel special that I'm telling them that they're somehow better than other people. And to me, this is not at all a loving place to come from and not something that's going to help your child. To make them think they're somehow better than other people actually won't help them in the long term be happier to have good relationships, and to be good people in this world. So we can teach our children that they are very special, but that other people are special too, that everyone deserves kindness and love and to be treated okay, that their feeling is not more important than other people's feeling. Of course, you're their parent, so you're going to take care of them and their feelings more than anyone else, but it doesn't mean that they are somehow special and better than everyone else. We teach them that they are good and lovable, but that other people are good and lovable too. That we don't need to hate anyone or put anyone down. That no one deserves to suffer. Definitely your child does not deserve to suffer, but no one else does either. So hopefully we can break this mindset that we help our children by telling them somehow they're better than everyone else. That actually showing them that they're a human being and connected to everyone else is much better than trying to separate them in this type of way.
And again, if we want to teach our children about kindness, we have to model kindness. We have to make it part of our conversations, talking about being kind, helping others, not just thinking about ourselves, thinking about what other people go through, trying to get them to see other people's perspectives. Traveling can be a great way to do this. You see people from different cultures and see they're not different from you, but we always don't have the luxury of traveling. So there's other ways you can do that, even just in your own city, interacting with people that might seem different or getting them to see that and approaching the world in a way that you don't see people as different from you, that you don't create these us and them distinctions. I know sometimes we can be very proud of some aspect of our cultural heritage or our background, but I think sometimes this has negative effects when you say we are these kinds of people and that makes us this. To me, you can be proud of your culture, but you also recognize other people are proud of their culture. And so I know Iranians often talk about, oh, well, all, our culture has this and this and this, and other people don't have that, or our history goes back this long or that long, or whatever it is. And you can be very proud of that, but not that it makes you better than people from another culture, but that you love your culture, just like you love your husband or your wife, and to you they are the best in the world, but doesn't mean that you have to actually say they're better people or that you have to look down at someone else. So we can love our culture, but not have to necessarily look down at others or somehow find it as superior. And we can love our children without having to make them feel that they're superior to other people, but that we love them so much for being them and everyone else is worthy of love also. Um, so I think it's so important as parents that we recognize the importance of teaching our kids kindness and empathy and making it a big part of our families and our lives. And that's the only way it's really going to get to them is if we have that mindset, not just as an activity or a technique, but the way we approach the world and in that way teaching them that this is a better way to be or a good way to be for themselves and for others. So again, that was some more thoughts on Jamil Zaki's book, The War for Kindness. Going into another commercial break, studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, Dr. Holokui. Hi, thanks for calling. Thank you for having me. And sure. Excuse my not very good English. <laughs> That's all right. Go ahead. Okay, I am calling regarding my daughter. She's five years and a half. Mm-hmm. We always joke and say she's 19 days older than Radio Hamra. <laughs> um, okay, she, um, about six months ago, she was diagnosed with ADHD. Mm-hmm. And this is not the only problem that we have since she was born. Um, she had very severe issues. She was uncomfortable. She was crying all the time. She had sensory processing disorder. And um, right now, I am not sure uh, which which problem that we have at home is um, because of ADHD and which one is because of my husband and I behavior and I don't know. Everyday life. So, well, you know, one thing I'll say, even when I hear you say that, I, I, it's good to try to understand what's going on, but it almost seems like you're trying to figure out, is it your fault or her fault when something is going on? And I would think it's better to not have that mindset to try to see who's wrong or who's to blame for what's going on. Because the way I'm hearing you say that is if we say, oh, it's her ADHD, then we say it's her fault. 
But if we say it's like, let's say you and your husband fighting, then we say it's your fault and that changes things. But really what you need to do will always be to make sure she feels okay regardless. So it's, and it's always, it's probably not going to be so black and white, but nonetheless, I want to hear what you have to say um, about that, but go ahead. Um, I do understand um, that um, you came to this um, thought that I am looking for somebody's fault, but I mean that, um, for example, she came home from school right now, mm-hmm. and she's very unhappy. She's very uncomfortable. She's fighting with her little brother. How old is the brother? Eight. Three and a half. Three and a half. Okay. Uh, um, I am looking for a, a way to help her and mm-hmm. the whole family because it's affecting my son, myself, my husband. I don't know what to do. If it's for ADHD, should I ignore it? Should I? Or if it um, it is because of... Uh, the things that I have did wrong, um, I don't know. I'm confused. Yeah. Okay. When you say she fights with her brother, like what happens? Okay. Right now she came back from so it, like she's mad she at was, you. Uh, pardon me. It it sounds like maybe she's mad at you, for for maybe letting her go to school and or she. Sometimes when kids come home from school, and a lot of times parents will say this, they look at the cameras or the teachers will tell them they were very happy, but they come home and they're mad or they say they were sad at school because they want to let the parent know I didn't like being away from you or I don't want you to think I'm okay being away from you. So it's their way of showing you. That wasn't okay. So it could be her way of showing you she didn't like being away from you, and so she's mad with you, even if she's happy at school. This is exactly what is because she had a very bad um, separation anxiety. Mm-hmm. When she turned three, and I sent her to school. I know that that she does she does want to stay home, although yeah. she has very good time at school. Mm-hmm. That's true, but um, that uh, not being happy continues. When we came up the stairs, we entered the house. She was very unhappy. Even my mom is here, and she figured out that there's something wrong with her. And uh, she started fighting with her brother. And it will continue, uh, this um, unhappiness will continue for about two hours until one of them cry badly, and I have to do something. So what do you tell her when you see her unhappy? Mm, she's complaining about everything. No, what, do you, what do you say to her? Do you tell her you can see she's upset or tell her she seems sad? Not to. I pr- try to uh, talk about something else. I, I right. Day at but yeah, you're trying to distract her or uh, yes. avoid her feeling. And yes. it's, there is at times a space for distraction. But in general, I would say rather than avoiding her feelings, actually talk about it. Go into her feeling. Be like, it seems like you're sad or you seem upset or angry. And let her talk about it. Because we think that if we distract her somehow it's just going to disappear but it doesn't and that's why it stays and it's more likely to come out some other way maybe she takes it out on her brother maybe she takes it out in some other way but if you actually let her talk about it it might help because also one it'll help her deal with the feeling and she'll also feel like you care about how she's feeling but if you just ignore it then she's just going to feel like you don't care and so even more that's going to make her upset 
you know she's going to get even more um more likely to be angry with you i'm i'm mad and mom doesn't even care or she's trying to pretend like i'm not mad so that's why i know a lot of times parents they think okay the kid is upset how do we just avoid the upset how do we distract them or make them not think about it but my recommendation is to do the opposite actually go right into it talk about it uh, let her tell you what she's feeling. Even if she tells you, mommy, I'm so mad at you. You're, you know, sometimes they say things we don't like. You're a mean mom or whatever they are going to say that we don't like. I would much prefer that than to try to teach her that she should avoid that feeling or pretend like it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. I totally understand. Yeah. Today, before uh, trying to distract her, I asked, what's the problem? And she said that the lady, can I give you an example? Sorry. Of course, yeah. The The lunch lady didn't give her enough time to finish her food mm-hmm. and she couldn't finish her favorite part of the food so she was mad at mm. the um, lunch lady and I tried to explain that she has just started kindergarten and they have to finish it in about 15 minutes and this is the rule and this is and then she said um, you know she is complaining about everything everything else. okay now I had problem with um, a, with a boy in the bus he did this, 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 and I tried to explain, and then he, he she said about something else. You know, I have so much age. Right, but but so the way you explained it, and even you said something before that a lot of times parents will say is that, like, she got mad at her brother for no reason, or, but when she talks about these things, even the way you're telling me right now, you're saying none of these things matter, or she shouldn't be upset about these things, and Uh I'm not saying she should be upset, but we want to give her the feeling that if she's upset about something that we care and that it's not that it's like, Oh my gosh, why are you annoyed about this? You know, she's eating her food and especially, especially you said she has sensory processing disorder. So some issues there sometimes with food, they can be more picky. So maybe she likes to eat it a certain way, or she likes to save this special part of the food at the end. And then they told her she can't eat anymore. And so she got upset and we can understand that. And to me, 15 minutes is not enough time. And we actually don't want to encourage kids to eat so fast because that's actually not good. Um, so we can I, we can understand that she didn't like it. Or if she got into an argument with the boy, we can understand that. What, what I'm feeling is that your tolerance for negative feelings is not very high. It's very low. Yeah. And so I want that's something for you to think about for yourself, that being able to tolerate your own sad feelings and sad feelings in general will help you be there for her more. Because what I'm hearing is everything she's, she's telling you she's sad about, you're saying that's no reason to be sad. Even if you don't tell uh-huh. her that, that's what you're feeling and that's what you're telling me. Because to me, you know, yeah, she's f- five five years old. She goes somewhere, they get upset by things. And maybe she's even more sensitive than most kids because you said, again, the sensory processing issues. And so things bother her more. And rather than making her feel like her feelings are bad or too much or not good, we want to always give her the feeling, I was talking a lot today about empathy, that we can understand what she's feeling, that we can see why that made her sad. We care that she's sad rather than her feelings are annoying or bothering us. And so that's something I think is going to be very important for yourself to look at is how am I making her feel about her feelings? Because to me, that's very important in how you're showing her to feel about herself. I totally understood. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And um, as you're explaining, um, I am... I know that she has, she doesn't have a good feeling about herself. Mm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Is there anything that I can do for well, her? Well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, this is definitely related to that because if she's feeling sad and then she feels like mommy doesn't like my sad feelings or mommy thinks my sad feelings are annoying or, you know, stupid or whatever, of course she's going to feel bad about herself, right? Because mm-hmm. you're telling her part of you is not good. And a lot of times parents give their kids this message that I only like you when you're happy or I only love you when you're happy. And of course like everyone especially kids are going to be even more sensitive they're going to be unhappy sometimes sad angry and then they think see mommy doesn't love me or this part of me is unlovable and we want to show her that all all of her is lovable even when she's sad even if she's mad at you you still love her even though you might not like something she's doing you you love her even if she throws a tantrum it's not easy you might in that moment not feel good but you love her and want to make sure she always knows that so that to me is I see this happen so much as people get older too, that when they look at their childhood, they see that so much of their life, they were told a lot of parts of themselves were not lovable or were annoying or their mom or dad didn't love it. And so they get this feeling that I'm unlovable. So to me, that's such a a big thing for, for you as it is with most families is realizing we want to make sure your daughter feels like no matter what she's feeling, we love her and we care. And then we want to, that's why I was saying even more about blame. It wasn't just about blame, but it's a, it's almost like this feeling of should she be sad or not? And I don't want you to think of it that way. If she's sad, we always want to care. We want to understand it first, not say, is it right or wrong for her to feel sad, but care and try to connect. And then we'll see what's going on afterwards, but not have the mindset of, we're going to determine if she's allowed to be sad about this. Oh, she's mad for no reason. I hear that a lot from parents. My kid is sad for no reason, mad for no reason. And I'm not saying they have to be mad or they have to be sad, but we always want to come from a place of curiosity. Okay, if she's sad today, let's try to understand why. Why is she sad right now? Oh, maybe she just came home and some things happened at school she didn't like. She's also seeing me. And she's mad that she's seeing me because she realizes that means I wasn't with her all day. And that makes her mad, you know, and she was with my, her brother all day. And so she sees me with the brother and she says, oh, he gets you, but I don't get you. You know, we want to understand the why rather than thinking she shouldn't be sad. And that's why I'm saying for me, your tolerance of the negative feelings is such a big part of overall mental health, but especially for parents to be able to handle their child and whatever they feel. And I don't know how your husband is with this also, but that we want to give her that space to be sad, to be angry, to be whatever it is, and show her that we love her no matter what. And that will actually help her in feeling better about herself, too. Okay, brother, thank you. Mm-hmm. And when we change our approach, will she feel better about herself? Well, you know, these types of things take time. I don't know. Even when you say she doesn't feel, you know, I'm actually at a commercial break and I want to keep talking to you because these are such important issues about things, about how we make our child feel. But after the break, I want to hear about when you think even she doesn't feel good about herself. I want you to share with me what it is that gives you that feeling. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Sure. All right. Thank you. Sure. We're going to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with a caller. Let's go back to her now. Radio Hamra, are you there? Hi, Dr. Hi. Okay. So before the break, we were talking about your daughter who's five and a half. And something that you said that I wanted to give you a chance to talk a bit more about is you're saying you feel like she doesn't feel good about herself, which of course... That kind of breaks my heart that you already you feel that from her at five and a half. Uh, but I wanted to hear from you. W- what gives you that, 
idea, or how do you see that in her? Okay, two times she told me that, Mom, I'm not good, I'm bad. Mm. And um, about one week ago, she was playing with her doll, and she was hitting her doll, and I asked her, why are you hitting her? Um, She said that, and then she started crying and said, "Uh, Mommy, I'm bad, I'm a bad mom for my Mm. doll. And Hmm. she simply says that. Yeah. Um, although that can mean a lot of things in that in that game. And even I know you said you told me you told asked her why. Um, but we want to even be aware of how we ask those types of things. If a kid is playing in a game and let's say sh- they show some aggression, of course, we don't want to say violence or hitting is good. But sometimes if we ask why, we can make it seem like we're saying it in a negative way. When when they're playing, sometimes they're they're trying out different things and they're trying to figure out things. But anyway, um, but when she said she's bad, that's that, of course, I, I'm sure that made you sad even hearing that made me a little sad to, to think about her feeling that way about herself. And so when you ask me how can you help her, the thing we want to make sure we don't show her is that we think she's bad. You and her dad have to make sure that you don't give her that feeling. And so if she's upset or she's being uh, in a bad mood or if she's even being mean to her brother, we want to make sure she doesn't feel like we think she's bad. Of course, sometimes she does something we don't think is good, and we can talk to her about that. So I'm not saying you have to ignore if she's hurting her brother. We have to stop that. But we want to make sure we're not giving her that message she's bad, that we show her that she's good, that if she's sad, that's okay. We have to make sure she feels that from you and, and him. Now, you're worried about you and your husband. How are things in the home as far as between you and him, is there fighting? What's happening there? Most of the time, they are fighting. Who is fighting? The, oh, you and brother and sister? I meant you and your husband. No, the kids. The kids, okay. Yes, she's taller than her brother, so she can push her. She's she's more strong. Uh, she hits her. She, um, she tells him that you don't know, you can't touch, I'm better than you, I'm... Yeah. I can do everything, you can do things, and make him sad. Well, yeah, so that's, you know, um, you know, this type of sibling things happen. They, are, they do that to some degree. But even in that, it might show she wants to emphasize how good she is because maybe she doesn't feel so good. And so she might feel that feeling just to show that she's stronger than him or all the ways that she's better than him compare herself. So, And we don't want her to, to do that even just because if she's comparing herself to him that she's little, she's also going to be comparing herself to other people who are bigger or stronger. And so we don't want to give her that that feeling. So it, it's very hard to deal with these situations when siblings start to fight because you want to create peace. You don't want to pick sides, but it's very difficult. What do you tend to do when she and her brother get into it if they're fighting? Um, it, it, what you said completely makes sense, but... I think I didn't understand your... Oh, that's okay. So if they're fighting, what do you do? How do you try to... If she says, I'm bigger than you, I'm smarter than you to her brother, and he gets sad, okay. what do you do? It, ended, it ends up with him crying and mm-hmm. coming to me and complaining about her sister. And at that moment, sometimes I say, um, I call my daughter and talk to them both. Sometimes I tell my son that... Uh, you are good, you are strong, you will be as tall as your sister or things like that. Or sometimes yeah. I tell them, um, you can go and talk to the other and um, solve the problem yourself. You know, I, mm-hmm. I'm trying to 
try everything. Yeah, that's it's very that's I why I'm hopeless. Yeah, I, I could see that it's not easy when they're fighting because like what's hard, being a parent is very hard. Being a parent of one child is hard, but then when you have two kids, it is even more challenging because you have to try to make sure they both feel good or feel okay, and that you don't take sides. Now, it like I said, it's hard to deal with those situations. One thing I would try not to mention is making the comparison part of how you help him by saying you're going to be taller than her because or as tall or as tall yeah Uh, even that you know i get that what you're saying but we want to try to make comparison as small or as as Mm -hmm. not important as possible so it's not that because let's say she's never he's never as tall as her or he becomes taller than her it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean he's better or good or this it's like oh you know you know you want to make sure he feels okay just being him right now because he might not be as tall as her for a while. And so even right now, and we can say it's not very nice for her to say that to you and you can talk to her too. But to me, it's just coming from this place, which we all have, and especially as a little kid, they have, of, well, I don't feel very good or very big. If I find someone smaller than me, I can feel better than them by putting them down. So it's tough. I could see how you, you feel stuck in those moments but i was also asking about things in the home how are things in general with you and your husband and how you guys interact with the kids do you and him do you feel like you and him are on the same page when it comes to how you take care of the kids or do you guys fight about how how to handle these situations um he is on my page he is uh, he does understand our situation um he tries to help sometimes uh, I can't say love is in the air. When he comes home, we are happy. We kiss each other. He kisses the kids. Um, but um, we have hard time because, as I said, she is not happy about herself. She's not happy about uh, whatever she has or the little brother. So she tries to complain and cry. So we do have hard time. Uh, I want to add that she is doing oral feedback two times a week. Okay. We have been doing that for t- these sessions. Uh, and Dr. Fahid, I wanted to ask you, can we ask her doctor to try the new medication that you and your dad were talking about, ketamine, for my daughter? I don't think that's appropriate for children, and that's more for depression. I think she is depressed and she has anxiety and depression. Okay, and she might. I'm I'm almost certain that medication is not okay for a child, so I wouldn't worry about that. But, you know, I'm going to say this again. The feeling I get from you, I don't want her to be depressed or anxious, but there's almost this sense I get from you that you want to just take away her bad feelings. Okay, good. You know, and that's what I, you know, even when you bring it up, she, you say she tries to complain or, you know, she came home and even my mom could tell she was in a bad mood or it almost is feeling that she shouldn't be in a bad mood because her grandma is there. And I think she seems like she might be, and, and it's not that we ignore her feelings or if she needs treatment, we don't help her. But I just keep getting that sense from you that it's, we want to take away her negative feelings. So maybe if there's this new medication, we give it to her and then her feelings disappear. And the way you describe her, either having ADHD, having sensory processing issues, it seems that she's going to be a more sensitive kid, which is challenging for you, but even more challenging for her. You know, you walk into a room, everyone is comfortable, but she feels cold. And it's not up to her that she feels cold. She just feels cold, for example. I'm not saying that's actually what she's feeling, but that's how she experiences life. 
that everyone else might feel okay or most kids might feel okay, but she might feel a little bit uncomfortable. And then when you feel a little uncomfortable, you might say something or it might put you in a bad mood. So it's tough for you guys, but we also want to remember that it's even harder for her. So if she's in a bad mood, if she's upset, we want to try to avoid thinking that, oh, she's just trying to be difficult or she's trying to bother us or she wants to be in a bad mood. We want to really respect it that if she's sad, if she's not happy, there's a reason. Just like if she starts coughing, you don't just say, oh, you're just making up a cough. You would probably wonder what's going on, maybe give her medicine, give her soup, something to make her feel better. If she feels bad emotionally, we want to give her that same feeling that it's always going to be approached with love and care. And she might always be slightly anxious her whole life, maybe. I don't know. It could be how she is. And lots of people go through life slightly anxious or slightly depressed, and it can be okay. What about you and um, her dad? Do you guys have anxiety, depression yourselves or in your family? I feel I have uh, social anxiety and my husband has ADHD. Okay. So social anxiety, does that mean you don't like being, I mean, it's interesting you say you have social anxiety, but you called me and are okay talking uh, here. Maybe it it feels more separate because you're not actually seeing me or seeing the people that are listening. But when you say you have social anxiety, is it that you don't like to go, let's say, to parties or public places? How does that show itself, your social anxiety? When I compare myself, I'm a student. Um, I'm a master's student. um, But um, when I compare myself to my classmates, when I go for a presentation, it's very hard for me to present. Even though I know the whole thing that I'm presenting, it's hard for me. Um, Short breathing, um, Mm -hmm. I feel I get red, things like that. And about, for example, going to party, I can say honestly that yes, I can. I prefer stay home than going okay. to um, places. Yeah. And what are you studying? What is your master's in? Master of Arts in teaching. Teaching. Okay. So you want to teach? Yes. Great. Okay. Um, and so you know, even though you get more nervous, it seems like you still do okay, or you're able to function, right? Okay, and so that's why I want you to keep keep in mind, again, we don't want to ignore your daughter's anxiety, but that we can't just make it go away. And if her mom is anxious, a lot of times there's a genetic component and also just the environment and how you're going to be with her. So maybe she will be anxious. We want to be aware of this, but we don't want to make her feel bad about it. And something that we very often can do as parents is, uh, just as individuals, but especially parents, if you don't like something about yourself or if there's something you wish you didn't have, when you see it in her, you're going to have an even stronger reaction to it. So if you don't like yourself that you're anxious and you have the social anxiety or any other type of anxiety, if you see it in your daughter, you might even be more negative towards it because you're seeing that negative part of yourself in her and you're going to react towards it. So that's something I want you to also be aware of, that because you feel this yourself, you might take it out on her. Does that make sense? Uh, so it shouldn't be like that? Well, it's not that I want to say it shouldn't be, but I want you to be aware of this, that sometimes when we see something in our children that reminds us of something in ourself that we don't like, we might even be more mean to our child because of that. We might say, 
don't be this way. You shouldn't be this way. Why would you be this way? Because we see part of ourself in them that we don't like. Because you maybe tell that yourself. Why are you nervous? Why do you get nervous before presentation? Everyone else is so calm, but you're not calm. By the way, most people are nervous before presentation. Maybe you get more nervous, but everyone gets nervous before they do a presentation. Now, that's a whole other conversation. But I just want you to be aware of this, that you might even be more harsh on her because you see parts of yourself that you don't like in her. And so you want her to just not be anxious. Why would you be anxious? It's so stupid to worry about these things. So you don't want her to worry because you probably tell yourself those same kinds of things. I would assume because many times people who have anxiety will do that to themselves. Say, why do you make this a big deal? Why do you worry so much? You don't need to be nervous. No one else is nervous. And so if you have those conversations with yourself, you're probably going to have them with her too. It completely makes sense. Yeah. Yes, you are right. So, in, in, and I forgot. To sure, say, go I'm ahead. Sorry, I forgot to say that she has seizures too. She has seizures. Yes. Hmm. Okay. How how is is that still something ongoing or something she used to have? Okay, she had it from birth, mm-hmm. but those are the seizures that happen in the night time. They are called hmm. nocturnal seizures. Okay. Something like that. Um, when we figure out, uh, we did a. We did a QEG and and EEG and then figured out that she has seizures and she was on meditation for about one month and then we, when we started um, neurofeedback, um, she doesn't have them anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay, well that's it was good. Very helpful. Yeah, I'm glad it has been. Um, But, you know, again, I'm sure that's been a lot for you guys to deal with, uh, your your daughter having seizures and the other things she's dealt with. We always want to remember that it's been even harder on her. And so when she's emotional and she's expressing these things, I hope you can respond to her sensitively and with empathy and make her feel good. The most important way, you know, a lot of times we think to make our kid feel good we should just tell them, you're the best, you're so smart, you're so this, you're so that. And we want to be careful of even the compliments we give. And we do want to give her compliments, of course. But even more important is how she feels you feel about her. If she gets sad and then she sees a look in your face and you're like, oh my gosh, here we go again. Or what is she doing? Or why is she this way? That's going to make her feel really bad about herself. That feeling she gets when she's upset because sometimes she doesn't feel good and then she looks at you and you make her feel like she's should feel even worse or you make her feel even worse that's what really hurts so i would say when you're asking me how to help her feel better about herself be aware of all the messages you're giving her about how easy she is how difficult she is or how annoyed annoyed you are by her because that's going to have a big impact on how she feels about herself and you know she's it seems like she's has a lot to deal with the seizures the adhd sensory processing and so she might be a little bit different and then what's also going to happen is if your son doesn't have these issues as they get older you might feel like oh look how much easier he is than her and you'll want her to be like him and that's where we really want to be aware of the comparisons and not trying to make any child be like anyone else other than themselves So you might have a child who has sensory processing issues, ADHD, had dealt with seizures, and that's her. And we love her for being herself, and we're going to love her brother for being him. And we don't need either of them to be anything other than themselves and want to make sure we make them feel that we love them for who they are. That's the most important thing, rather than to try to get her to be one way or the other. Um, Okay. 
Okay, but thank you well, for coming. Yes, I, uh, I feel much better now. Thank oh, good. You. Well, I'm glad we talked. And you know, it's because you're also in education, it's going to be good for you to keep looking at these issues about the feelings. Because you know, when you're a parent, of course, it's so hard. Then when you're a teacher, you might have 15, 20 kids in your class, and you want to give them all that good feeling too. So uh, I think that's going to be interesting for you to have that experience. But I'm glad you called, and it was very nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me, and you really helped me. Oh, good. I'm so happy. I hope I did. It was very nice to talk to you. You really did. Thank oh, you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Take- oh, I'm sorry I hung up with her. And it was so nice to get to talk to her, and another reminder of uh, how I feel very lucky to get to do what I do. All right, going into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. As I mentioned before the break, um, I really do feel lucky to get to do this show and get to talk to people and talk to that very kind mom and hopefully help uh, with her five and a half year old and three and a half year old. And um, but I did want to continue some aspects of that conversation because to me that is so important. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, when talking about kindness and empathy and raising our kids to be kind and empathic. Uh, and that being so important in general, talking about emotions, I also mentioned there. And I wanted to talk about that because it's something that I see happening so much with how parents and how they interact with their kids are such an important aspect of parents and parenting that we sometimes don't realize maybe is the most important thing in and how we make our kids feel. And as she, as she was asking, it's so important for us to think of how do I make my child feel and how do I make them feel about themselves? How do I make him or her uh, feel about their own self-worth, self-esteem, and who they are? And it's done in so many little moments. Of course, uh, we can give compliments. Oh, you're so beautiful. You're so smart. You're so good. You're so this. I love you so much. And, and those can be very good. Of course, even with the compliments, as I alluded to in the last segment, you want to be careful because if you keep telling your kid they're so smart, um, as I mentioned earlier related to the mindset, if you have a a fixed mindset, meaning that you're getting good grades because you're smart, that actually does not help your child and will lead to this fixed mindset. That means that if you're getting a good grade, that means you're smart and that's it. And there's nothing you can do about it other than realizing what the truth is that if you have a growth mindset, means that you worked hard, so you got a good grade. That means that if you got an A, that means you worked hard. And if you didn't, well, that's okay. All that means is you have to work harder and you can um, do better there's actually growth that is possible. So even sometimes we think that uh, because it's so bad to tell your kids mean things like you're stupid and you're ugly, which of course it is, that the opposite is good to keep telling them they are smart. Uh, we want to be aware that this itself can have its own issues. But anyway, the, the positive words aside, which is so important to give our kids lots of good feelings about themselves verbally and what we say, but how we respond to them is in some ways even more important. And it's tough, as, as the caller was talking about her kids and having two kids and her daughter at times being in a bad mood. It's not easy to respond to our children in an empathic, loving way all the time. And so the good news is you don't have to be perfect and you're not going to be perfect and that's okay. As Winnicott said, you know, we can talk about being good enough, um, but we want to talk about what that means to be good enough. And so when your child comes to you upset, crying, sad, your response is going to be so critical in helping them feel what they feel about their own feelings. Are they going to feel like it's okay to be sad and mad? Are they going to feel that they are okay, even though they get sad and mad sometimes? 
Or are they going to come to the conclusion that mommy or daddy don't like me or don't love me when I'm mad or sad? Or they want me to always be happy. And so if I'm sad, sometimes that means I'm bad. If I'm mad, that makes me a bad person or that makes me unlovable. Because that's exactly what, unfortunately, we sometimes do as parents and caregivers. When the kid is in a good mood, we're happy and having a good time with them. Then they're mad or having a tantrum. We're like, oh, just leave. I don't want to see you right now. Or we put them in timeout and we don't see them for a few minutes, basically giving them the idea that when you're this way, I don't love you. I don't want to be around you. And actually, unfortunately, this is when they need us the most. Not to tell them that, oh, it's so fun when you have a tantrum, but that we still love you even when you have a tantrum or if you're upset or you're sad. So how we respond to the child gives them this feeling of being okay and being loved no matter what. And we can even talk to them about feelings. That you know what? All Everyone gets sad sometimes. Everyone gets mad sometimes. That's part of being human. And even you can talk about why we get those feelings. You know, yeah, we get sad when something happens we don't like and Give them examples. Oh, remember when your basketball team lost the game and you were sad? Yeah, I remember you were because you really wanted to win and it made you sad. And we can understand that. Um, or, oh, mad is when we something happens or someone does something to us that we don't like or we don't feel good. I remember you were mad when your sister um, broke your toy. You were mad at her. And we can understand being mad. So we can talk about those feelings. And then also importantly, as I was talking with that last caller, what we try to do because we don't like those negative quote-unquote negative feelings is we try to make them go away so either we ignore them or avoid them or when our kid shares them with us we minimize them so i know so many times i use this example but i i see it happen a lot was a kid comes home from school and says the kids wouldn't play with me and they made fun of me and rather than realizing how painful this must be for our child because we don't have a tolerance for those negative feelings. We tell them, it's okay. Who cares what people say? And you can make new friends tomorrow. And you won't even care about these kids in a few years. So we just try to dismiss the feelings. So we say, it doesn't matter. Who cares? You shouldn't be sad. You shouldn't be upset. Don't make this a big deal. Don't have any feelings. And what I always tell parents is if you went to a dinner party and all the families that were there, all the other couples, let's say, made fun of you and said, don't come back anymore, I doubt you guys would just be okay and drive home and say, la, 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 well, that was another day. Let's just go go to sleep. You'd be upset. You'd be sad. You'd be really hurt by what happened. And here we are expecting a child to not care. And it's not that we really think they're going to not care, but we actually can't handle those feelings. So to be a good parent, we have to be able to tolerate the all feelings, but especially tolerate those Feelings that are what we consider negative feelings, the ones that don't feel so good. Sadness, anger, madness, feeling upset. We have to be able to tolerate them. And first, that means we have to be able to tolerate our own negative feelings. Can I tolerate being sad myself? Can I tolerate being angry and upset? Or do I try to get rid of those feelings as quickly as possible, as many of us do? either by distracting myself on my phone or something or using drugs, alcohol, food to numb the feeling. We tend to unfortunately try to escape these feelings because we also learned that these feelings are not good, they're not okay, and what we're supposed to do is get rid of them as soon as possible. And so first we have to tolerate these feelings ourselves 
in ourselves to be able to tolerate them in someone else. And so we also want to make sure we don't give that message to our kids that, you know, if you're angry, let's just ignore it or pretend like it doesn't exist. If you're sad, let's try to numb that feeling or just eat something or do something to make it go away. We want to sit with them with those feelings. And so it might seem counterintuitive to some parents because they have this mindset that my job is to make sure my kids are always happy, which I think is an unfortunate mindset to have, but we have to sometimes let them be sad. Not that we ignore their feelings or we don't care or we don't do anything about it, but sometimes we recognize that they're going to be sad about something. Oh, you know, someone, one of your friends is moving. I can understand that makes you sad. You really loved him very much. You guys were very close and you're going to miss him. But unfortunately, most parents say, who cares your kid? He's moving. There's other kids in your school. Why are you sad about that? Because we can't tolerate the feelings. So we want to give them that message that your feelings are okay. And these feelings are okay. You don't have to be afraid of being sad. It's not actually bad that you're sad. It's actually a good thing. This shows how much you loved your friend. You got very close to him and now he's moving and it makes you sad. I still remember one of my friends moving away in second grade and me feeling sad about it. And I think it made sense to feel sad. That was a good feeling to have. And I hope I was able to experience that and, and feel that. And so we want to make sure we give our kids that same experience. It's okay to be sad. It makes sense that you miss your friend. And so by giving them this uh, gift of allowing them to feel what they're feeling, one, it helps them in dealing with their emotions as they keep getting older dealing with their own emotions, dealing with relationships and the emotions that come up with relationships. But also we give them the message that everything they feel is okay, that they don't have to feel bad about certain types of feelings. And that to me is so important, that they don't feel like it's bad for them to be sad, that it's bad for them to be mad, that no one will love them. Because actually that's not even the truth. Everyone feels all the feelings. And we want to tell them that both explicitly by sharing that with them, that we're going to feel these different feelings, but also in how we respond to their feelings. Okay, you're crying, you're sad, that's okay. You're mad, that's okay. We love you no matter what you feel, not just when you are happy. But because we like the feeling of happiness, we make them feel that that's the only time we feel good around them, and that's really something that's quite harmful to them. So be aware of how you respond to your kids and their feelings, how you show them it's okay for them to feel different things, and make sure you tell them that you love them and show them that you love them no matter what they feel. So another thank you to that caller. I really did enjoy talking to her and uh, brought up some of these important issues of how we deal with our own feelings and how that affects how we deal with our kids and what they feel. Um, again, the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on Monday's show is Letter to the Father by Franz Kafka. I'm very excited to read this book and share my thoughts with you uh, Monday night. All right, a big thank you to the caller and all the listeners and to Ghazala here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. Have a wonderful day.